Welcome to an incomplete guide to world domination, a podcast by creators for creators, because together we can take over the world. I'm your host, Brianna Toiber. How's your day been so far? Been good. A little easier than most, so got a lot done, though. Uh, usually goes about an hour. I've got some questions, perhaps just like stuff I remembered from the from your talk at Industry Giants and figure we just kind of go until we run out of things to talk about or if it's been an hour and you want to come back another day to talk more we could do that sounds good because i can talk forever so <laughs> <laughs> yeah i'm not gonna lie after your thing at industry giants when they were doing the questions i almost just straight up raised my hand and asked if you wanted to be on this but i figured i'd let the artists talk and i get a hold of you later which i did eventually uh, okay, so before I completely forget, would you like to introduce yourself? My name is Mark Simon, and I'm known mostly as the godfather of storyboarding, but I'm also an author and director. Your story stuck out to me. I figured it'd be good to start at the beginning, and when you first got into art and drawing and storytelling, well, visual storytelling. I mean, that goes way, way back. I mean, you know, just thinking about about the talk that I gave at Industry Giants, which was just a fantastic event. You know, my first professional uh, design work was I had my own line of skateboards when I was 12. And it was skateboards that I actually designed and built. And then I sold them through Schwinn. And then, well, I guess I was in my mid-teens and I was doing design work for my dad's construction company. And then started picking up his clients or people that worked with him and doing uh, you know, illustration design work for them. And then I started uh, self-syndicating a comic strip when I was in high school. And then I uh, did the same thing when I was in college and I became editorial cartoonist and I published a magazine for a while while I was in college and I opened up an ad agency. So all those things just kind of kept, uh, were, were great. It was a lot of fun. And then when I graduated, I decided to move to Hollywood and became an art director on my first movie when I was out there called Slave Girls from Beyond Infinity. And it was great. So I was designing, working from movie to movie, but I wasn't drawing as much and I really missed it. So I started looking into storyboarding because I've seen them, obviously. I've seen storyboards on the movies I was designing. And I went over to the biggest agency in the world at the time for storyboard artists called Storyboards, Inc., and I just kept showing up until they got tired of seeing me and started training me. And then they started placing me on commercials. And that was the start of, of transitioning from design work to storyboarding. And storyboarding then led me into directing, producing and directing animation and live action. And it's just been a hell of a ride ever since. Did you go to school to learn any of the design work or did you learn most of it just sort of on your own? Well, it, it was it was a mix of things. Design, uh, designing and how, building things came from my father. Uh, when I was fourteen, I took over as superintendent of my dad's big construction company. We built very very large custom homes, anywhere from thirty five hundred to ten thousand square foot homes. And so I ran the crews. I would I would start the jobs before I went to school in the morning, and uh, then I'd go to school, and then I'd go in the afternoon and evening and finish up the work, close down the job sites, and go home for dinner. So I knew how to design and build, and that's how I got my start when I first moved to L.A. was as construction coordinator, because I knew how to do all of that. 
And then within a couple of weeks, I became the art director on, on my first movie. Now, when I went to college, I did get a scholarship in theater to college, but I never took any, any theater course. So they finally stopped giving me money uh, when they realized <laughs> I never took a course in it. But, you know, I, I studied film and I studied commercial art, which was fantastic. But most of what I did was always either self-taught or taught on the job. Not to say I didn't get a lot out of my film school. I did. But there was no such thing as, uh, you know, this is back in the um, early 80s. No one was teaching sequential illustration back then. In fact, it really wasn't the thing until I started writing the textbooks on it. So my the third edition of my book is out now. And it was the first book that became a really good seller on how to do storyboards called Storyboards, Motion and Art. It's pretty cool when I go into studios and I'll see either my storyboarding books or the books I've written on producing animation or, or my facial expressions, reference book for artists. Those are by far my bestsellers. I'll walk into a studio and I'll see my books there on the shelves, including even when I, uh, I've, I've gone through China a couple of times on, on uh, speaking tours. And I'll walk into Chinese studios and I will see my books there. How surreal is that? Like, do you ever get used to seeing that everywhere you go? It, it, I don't know if you get used to it. I mean, I've seen enough where I realize, okay, my books are kind of everywhere, but you never get tired of seeing it. I mean, it's cool as hell. Yeah, I mean, it, it is. It is. It is awesome. In fact, I, I went in. It was really funny. I was I, years ago. I was pitching a show. I don't remember which one it was, but I went into uh, into Disney and I went into uh, Mike Moon's office. He was the head of development at the time. And when I walked in, one of my books was sitting on his desk and two of my books were sitting on the top of his bookshelf. And I thought, this will probably go pretty well. Yeah, it didn't, <laughs> but it felt good walking in. <laughs> yeah, the, that's a pretty good sign when they already love you that that conversation is going to go really well. <laughs> they even knew it was me. I mean, that's the thing. A lot of people have my books, but and they don't necessarily know when I walk into their office that I'm the author. So... Do you ever have people like try and explain to you stuff that is in your book and then you have to tell them, yeah, I know what's in the book. I wrote it. It's happened a few times and it's really fun. A big smile crosses my face and then I then I get to tell them where that info came from. And it's funny, too, because <laughs> I'll also get artists come to me and they'll they'll give me their portfolio. And what's really cool is a lot of times I'll see exercises that are in my storyboard book that I literally produce for artists to learn how to do it. I'll see those exercises in the samples they send me. I can't even imagine how awesome that feels. Like I get excited whenever someone's like, yeah, I'd love to be on your podcast or, Oh, I think that's cool. I'm just like, somebody likes what I'm doing. Yay. <laughs> yeah. It's fun. And, and, you know, between that and, and all my public speaking and, and, you know, I, I speak at a lot of the big conferences, you know, like you saw me over, over there at, uh, in Dallas and, and I also do a lot of online training, like on LinkedIn Learning and things like that. A lot of people also recognize my voice. So I'll be at conferences and someone will hear me and come over and introduce themselves just because they recognize my voice. Oh, that's cool. You mentioned um, at Industry Giants, I remember like one thing that stuck out to me was how many jobs you got because you just straight up, you just walked straight up to the person in charge and basically told them that you wanted on the job. What were they going to hire you for? Yeah, and, and it's almost it's almost a fun challenge to see how often I can do it. Um, I did the same thing when I moved here to Atlanta. You know, my goal was to work on The Walking Dead. And that was my first job here in town. 
I knew one person who worked on the show. He, he was the one of the two DPs on it. Steve Campbell and I had worked together for a long, long time. And I said, Steve, just introduce me to producer. I don't care who. I don't care which one. Any of them, I'll do the rest. Just get me in for that initial meeting. And he was good to his word. He, you know, he said he would. He did. And um, I had one meeting. Guy said, this all looks great. We're not quite ready. Call me in two weeks. I called him two weeks to the day and he offered me the job on the phone. So, you know, part of it was a test. But, you know, obviously I passed. So I, I got on it. And so far I've done two straight seasons of it. One of the things when I talk to people, I tell them, especially creatives who often feel like they don't know why they're not getting more work. And, and as I tell people, you can be the best in the world at what you do. But if you don't tell people what you do, you're not giving them the opportunity to hire you. So you have to let people know sitting in your studio and being the best will not get you jobs. You have to let people know what you want and what you're capable of doing. Yeah, there's it's like this thing of you have to kind of not be afraid to walk in like you own the place and tell people about what you're doing, which with some creatives and some projects, that can be scary because you're like, well, this is my baby. And what if they don't like it? But what if they don't like it. You know, no's never no never killed anybody. You know, no is just the only thing no is, is not now. It never bothers me because every time I hear a no, I'm one step closer to that next. Yes. There's no point not going for it because you can't not have the job any more than you don't have it now. That's right. Yeah. It can't get worse. So, you know, you might as well go out and keep telling people uh, what you want because then you have the opportunity to get it. Exactly. Yeah, and it is, I mean, I've done that so many times, you know, just like I think one of the I don't remember if it was, but I think one of the stories was, you know, how I got my job working for Spielberg. You know, it took me 15 minutes from the time I had the idea to I was working for him. I actually wouldn't mind hearing that story again. <laughs> This was when I was I was one of the designers. I was the second designer at Nickelodeon when it went national. We were based on the uh, in the live action productions and um, we were based at Universal in Orlando at the time. And I was designing, I think it was Welcome Freshman or one of those shows at the time. And and Universal being a big, busy lot, I found out that uh, Sequest, which was kind of Star Trek Underwater which was a Spielberg produced show was moving from LA to Orlando for the second season. And they had already moved most of the crew in and they were building the sets over there. And I was a huge fan of the show and I'm a huge fan of science fiction. And Oh, by the way, I'm a huge fan of, of Steven Spielberg. So I thought I, I want on this show and I was an art director at Nickelodeon. And I also storyboarded everything for the network. Uh, there weren't many things that needed storyboarding, but mm -hmm. I did all at the time, but I figured a show that size, just because I'd been around production for a long time, even at that point, a show that size, we're going to bring in all of their key people, including art director. So I knew I couldn't get on as an art director, but I figured either as set designer or as a story artist on literally the biggest show on TV at the time. It was the highest budgeted show uh, of the time. This was, I think 1993, something like that. That would the, either one of those positions I'd be happy with on a Spielberg production. So. I didn't, but I didn't know anyone on, on the production, even it, the lot wasn't that big, but I needed that in, but I had a friend I had that friend. Everyone has, um, everyone has a patty in their life. My patty is the person who talks too much. 
but knows everybody because of it, whether they like her or hate her, everybody knows her because <laughs> she never shuts the hell up. So I called Patty and she was in the same, she, she had a small office in the same office building where Sequest was setting up. So I call her up. Hey, Mark, how you doing? Great, Patty. Hey, who have you met on Sequest? I know you've met somebody. There's no way you've not talked to someone on there. And she said, well, I had lunch the other day with the construction coordinator. I went, oh, my God, that's perfect. I started in the industry. I can talk his language. I want you to introduce me. I'll be right there. And I hung up before she could say no. (laughs) And I grabbed my portfolio because I'm a good artist. I never went anywhere without my portfolio. And I went over to her office. I walked in. Hey, Patty, great. Good to see you. Thanks so much for agreeing to help me. She never agreed to help me. But I figured, you know, anytime you can tell someone, thank you for doing something that you're about to do, you've got a better chance of them doing it. And I just grabbed her hand and we walked out. And so (laughs) she's like, okay. (laughs) And we started walking between the sound stages. And sure enough, this guy, Mike, who is a construction coordinator, walks out of one of the sound stages. She calls out to him, hey, Mike, hey, Patty, how you doing? And she says, hey, Mike, I want you to introduce you to this buddy of mine, Mark Simon, at which point I forget Patty exists. I'm focused 100% on Mike. <laughs> and I said, dude, these sets are incredible. I love what you're doing. I would, uh, you know, I'd love to see more. He goes, yeah, sure. Let me show you around. People love to show off what they're doing. They really do because, like, it's it's always really exciting when you find someone who's actually genuinely interested and excited about what you're working on. Oh, absolutely. And you can see their eyes light up. So I said, man, you know, I started in the industry doing this, but never to the scale. This is awesome. So he's, yeah, let me show you around. So we're walking around. He's showing me some of the sets, blowing my mind. You know, you know, I look, I've never gotten jaded in the industry because I still get such a kick out of every aspect of it. Because it's And it's been well over 30 years I've been doing this now. But uh, so I said, dude, I'd give anything to be uh, to be on this show. He goes, so what do you do? I said, well, I do set design and storyboarding. He goes, oh, well, we're still hiring. They might need it. I went, great. Who would I talk to? He goes, well, probably would be Vaughn Edwards, our production designer. I went, great. Is he around? He said, I, I think so. I think he's in his office. I went, awesome. Could you introduce me? I'm not leaving anything up to chance. I'm literally asking for what I want. He said, um, sure, person I literally just met. And so we, so we walk over to the office building up to the second floor, walk up to one of the offices. He knocks on the door and Vaughn is sitting there at his, at his drawing table. And he said, hey, Vaughn. Hey, Mike, how you doing? He goes, hey, look, I want to introduce you to this great guy I just met. Uh, love to get on the show. At which point I forget Mike exists. And I go, Vaughn, <laughs> dude, awesome design. Love the show. Would love to get on. What do you do? Set design and storyboarding. Well, let me see your stuff. I showed him my stuff. He's like, yeah, this all looks great, but I don't make the final decision. I said, great. Who does? He said, well, that would be Oscar Costo, our supervising producer. Cool. Is he around? He said, I think he's down in his office. I went, great. Would you introduce me? So Vaughn gets up, walks me down to the other end of the hall, knocks on the door. This gigantic office, which I didn't even know existed, even though I'd been in, in that building many times. And uh, he said, Oscar, this is Mark Simon. Yeah, uh, he's a great set designer and story artist here in town. I've looked through his stuff. It all looks great to me. It's all up to you. Now, I didn't forget uh, who Vaughn was because I'd be working under him. <laughs> Waves me in. I walk in. He puts his hand out. I hand him my portfolio. He looks through it for five or ten seconds. It felt like it was absolutely nothing at all. He closes it. 
puts it to the side, looks up at me and goes, all right, here's the deal. And I'm thinking, wow, that was not enough time. I don't know how this is going to go. And he said, I've met a lot of people here in Orlando who do exactly what you can do in set design. And I'm thinking, oh, that's the direction this is going. <laughs> not great. <laughs> Uh, yeah, that that moment of well, crap, that wasn't yeah, that didn't take that, long. <laughs> yeah, well, I got this far at least. And he goes, but you're the only person I've met who actually understands storyboarding. You're our new story artist, and that was it. There was literally no discussion. He just hired me right there, and I was like, uh, wow, that was awesome, cool. When do you need me to start? How about Monday? You know, which was this was like on a Thursday or something like that. So a couple days later, I started and. Uh, then I ended up doing, I actually ended up doing a lot more than storyboarding. I ended up doing uh, all the concept design, prop illustrations. I designed some of the characters, some of the lead characters I designed on the show. Uh, a couple of the ships that were on the show. Of course, I did all the storyboarding. I did all the animatics on it. I ended up becoming the liaison between production and the effects studio uh, out at Amblin Imaging. And I even got my start in directing because I uh, ended up doing some second unit directing on one of the episodes too. So you never know what's going to happen until you just try. Absolutely. That's it. Just get off your ass and get out there and try. Talk to people. Tell them what you want. Ask a lot of questions. I mean, I've lucked my way into a lot of things. I've forced my way into a lot of things because I see what I want and I go for it. You know, sitting at home and going, God, I hope I get a call for it. will do literally nothing. Making, you know, sending out emails does very little. But. Meeting people face-to-face does a lot. It's hard to forget someone when you've met them and you get to get you get a feel for their passion on what it is that they want. It makes a huge difference. That is true. This email, this interview might have happened sooner if I had asked you at the thing instead of emailing you because I don't know if you ever actually responded to that first email. I don't know if I got the first one. I remember the second one I, and I responded right away to it. Yeah. Um, but we had met face-to-face and so once I saw the email and it was a reminder that we had talked, that makes a huge difference because we had met. I was also a lot more straightforward the second time. And I was like, which of these days works best? I look forward to talking to you because I was like, I'm not missing this. I am absolutely not <laughs> missing this because there's so many people that can learn from your story. So many creative people who want to do stuff, but doing stuff is scary sometimes. I. I don't know. I just guess I figured your story might help inspire some people to take some leap, take a leap and do something. Well, I hope they do. I hope so, too, because it can be scary. But as you can see from my stuff, it's worked out. Um, it, it works out eventually. Not always in the way you think it will, but it does. If you keep trying, things will happen. Um, but you're right. It's never it's it's not always just a straight line. You know, it's amazing how some things that I was just interested in turned into other things like um, way back in the olden days before there was computer generated graphics. I remember there was a, a company that had moved into Orlando uh, again, same, same office building. And, and I had heard that they had a, uh, a computer painting system. This is before Photoshop existed. Give you an idea how long ago it was. Um, there was a, a, a software called Rio. It was a precursor to, uh, to Photoshop. And uh, they were they also had some uh, CG software, but for designing graphics, there no one was doing um, characters at the time. And I really wanted to learn that because I, I instantly saw that that was going to be the future of the industry. 
but the systems were like sixty, eighty, ninety thousand dollars. Oh, I couldn't afford that's that. That's a lot of money. So I went over to the guy's studio after work one day, since I was on the lot anyway at Nickelodeon. I just stopped by, found him in his office one day, and and said, "Hey, I heard you had the system." He goes, "Yeah." I said, "Sounds can can I see it?" I said, "Sounds really amazing." And this guy was so proud he couldn't use any of it, but he had invested in it, and he was trying to find people who could, who could, uh, could use it. And so he takes me to the other office, shows me all these things, and I'm like, "Oh my god, this is absolutely incredible!" He goes, "You know how to do any of this?" I said, "No, I I, I don't." I said, "But I see the benefit of all this." I said, do you ever have downtime? He goes, look, there's no one here. We always have downtime. I said, well, would you mind if uh, a couple nights a week, if I came over after work and just hung out and taught myself? And he said, no, that'd be fine. Now, here's a guy I literally had just met offering me access to this hugely expensive software and hardware. But I had the passion. He saw it. And I just asked if I could teach myself. And so three or four nights a week. I would spend hours after work over there. And there were, it got to the point where he would just tell me good night and ask me to lock up afterwards. He just trusted me around all of his equipment. And so I learned how to use Rio and some on the CG, but most, mostly on the, on the painting. And while I was doing that, he ended up landing a TV series called Firefighters. It was on NBC and it was kind of like cops where they would follow firefighters around to all the different things that were happening and, and he said, look, we just landed this. We need some posters painted and pictures fixed up and all this kind of stuff. You know the system. Would you like to work on it? So I ended up doing um, uh, basically Photoshop, but it was prior to that, uh, work and some simple CG work on an NBC series, having no other previous credit because I was there and had already proven myself. That's really cool. There's a lot of value from teaching yourself. Like I know some people who will be like, oh, I learn, want to learn this new skill. I'm going to go to school to do it. And Well, let me preface it. For some people, I get some people do need that structure and it, that helps them a lot when they're trying to learn something new. But it's not necessary. Being self-taught a lot, there's so many resources out there, especially like nowadays. It's ridiculous. I've taught myself everything I know about audio editing and stuff like that through YouTube. Yeah, in LinkedIn Learning, you know, I've got a bunch of courses on LinkedIn Learning that I've produced, especially on, on storyboarding and, and voiceover and things like that. There's, and I use LinkedIn Learning all the time to teach myself new softwares. And, you know, it's, it's funny because I've, I've got twin boys that are in college right now and they're talking about how much they're studying. And I said, that's great. You guys are doing fantastic. Just understand that the amount you study increases after you graduate. It doesn't go down. I've never studied as much in my life as I do now to keep up with all the new technology and things that are going on. College was simple compared to what I'm doing now. I don't actually know what they quite thought of that, but (laughs) they're like, shit, we want to get done with this. I guess after college, it's less of a roadmap of these are the things you're going to learn and more of a you making your own map for things that you're going to learn and what you're going to do next. And it's, there's so many more options and like there, there's basically no limit to what you can do. Like, even if you want to do something that usually the programs people use are really expensive, 
you can find something that's cheaper and or free that you can use. I understand the basics of it. And then if you ever get a chance to use the fancy schmancy Adobe program, you already know the basics and you can still pick it up. And you build your portfolio in, in the meantime. I mean, when I learned animation, you know, I failed first time I went out uh, to, to try animating. Um, when I did my first animation test, uh, when I first moved out to L.A., I was self-taught. I knew how to do it, but I knew how to do it my way. I didn't know the industry standard of writing up dope sheets and things. So I gave up doing animation for a while because that was back in the days of pencil and acetates. And, and you know, it, was, it took a lot to do it, you know, film cameras and everything. And when Digital Ink and Paint started up, the very the very first Digital Ink and Paint system, in fact, one of the first ones that was accessible called, was called AXA. And so I called up the guy who, uh, who owned AXA, talked to him, and bought the system, taught myself. As I was doing it, I started building a portfolio. And like anything in art, you need more than one style. So every sample I did as I was learning the software was a completely different style. So by the time I really understood it, I had a lot of different samples. So I had a really good portfolio. One of the things I always do is I always read industry trades, whether it's like Animation Magazine, AWN.com, or or uh, local industry trades like the uh, here it's the Atlanta Business Journal. Dallas has a business journal, you know, and they have an entertainment section in that every day uh, or every week, depending on how often the paper comes out. Um, you know, and Hollywood Reporter, you know, what, whatever. There's a ton of different industry trades. And I always read, read up on them. So one day in the uh, Orlando Business Journal, since that's where I lived at the time, I saw an article about a CG studio, CG animation studio that was moving in to Disney. And I thought, well, that's great. But they're going to need 2D animation and they're probably not going to want to or be able to hire the 2D artists that are on staff at Disney. I want to be his source. So I called up a friend of mine who worked at Disney Feature, um, Travis, and, and I said, Travis, I need you to get me a pass onto the back lot as if I'm coming to see you. He goes, why? I said, does it matter? He said, no, not really. I went, great, get me a pass. So he did. I used the pass and I just got onto the back lot at, at what was called Disney MGM at the time. Now it's called Disney Studios. Yeah, it's where the animations, that's where Disney feature was, but it's also where this other studio was, was coming in. And I knew the owner's name was Mark something because it, uh, he was in that article, interviewed in the article. So I started walking around the entire back lot, went into all the different bungalows, went to all the different buildings, looking for the studio. No one knew anything about them. And it was getting really frustrating because I was there for hours and I could not find them. So the only building left was the post-production house uh, called Disney Post. There were Disney Ideas at the time. So I walked in. I thought, well, maybe they're officed here. So I asked, uh, there's a little entry, and I asked a lady sitting there behind this thick glass. And she said, oh, yeah, they're officed in the back here. I said, fantastic. Is Mark available, the owner? I said, I would uh, love to talk to him for a minute. She goes, sure, let me call him. So Mark comes and opens up this, uh, the locked door. And just sticks his head through. Didn't even walk all the way in. He said, yeah, can I help you? I said, hi, my name's Mark Simon. I own a 2D animation studio here in town. I said, but look, I'm not looking for a job. I just want to show you my stuff because you're going to need 2D animation. I want to be your source. You got a couple minutes? I mean, I just cut cut right to it. And he looked down at his watch. So I was just about to head out for lunch and looked back at me and, 
you know what? Sure, I got a couple minutes. Come on back. And he opened the, up the door. And we go in back. And he said, well, let me show you what we're doing. Heaven to my ears. So they were in the middle of doing a, a, a big piece, big project that, that they had landed as soon as they got there. Cre- uh, creating a CG version of the first Disney Cruise Line called the Disney Magic. It was this beautiful boat, unbelievable detail, especially for the, uh, for the day and age. I mean, this is back in the late 90s. And he's showing me all this kind of stuff. And as we're talking, he goes, he said, well, then we're going to have Tinkerbell fly in, bow the boat, transform a regular ship into the Disney Magic, and then Tink flies off. Then so, we were talking about doing it CG. He said, but that's, CG's just not that great for that kind of work anymore. I said, you're right. It's not. 2D would be better. And he looks at me and goes, it would be better. Can you animate Tinkerbell? I went, sure, I can animate Tinkerbell. I had no idea, but I, you know, yes is always better. So I literally walked out of that first meeting with a $60,000 contract to animate a few seconds of Tinkerbell that launched my first animation studio. I had no professional animation experience and I walked out with Disney as my first client. You said a lot of these jobs that you got was because you had a friend there who was able to introduce you to someone. Where and how did you meet some of these friends? Travis... Well, first of all, where is at industry events? Get involved in whatever you're working in. You know, there's a CIFA in most of the big cities, which is the International Animation Society. There's media artists groups. There's uh, women film and women in animation. And there is the Visual Effects Society, all of which I'm a member of. Every city has, every decent sized city has some sort of industry, illustration, graphic, whatever even if it's the ad fed, the advertising federation, find them and then become a part of it. Not just go and sit in the corner or just sit at home and get the emails. That doesn't help anybody. Offer to sign people in at events because then you meet everybody. Offer to help put on events. Offer to do a logo for the association, whatever it is. Get involved because the people who run these events are the movers and shakers in any industry. And when a job comes up, They're going to hire someone they know and trust. And if you will deliver and show up with a great attitude for an industry function, you're going to do a kick-ass job when you're getting paid for it. So I'm always involved. So I'm always meeting new people. And I'm always going out there. Even if I'm tired, it's like, oh, I've got this meeting tonight. I should really go and meet new people. Amazing things happen because of that. Just knowing a bunch of animators, and animators tend to hang out, I had gotten to know a bunch of guys. And I met Travis. I don't even remember how I met Travis, but I ended up getting to know a bunch of animators and we would go out and have lunch together. So they would leave Disney and I would leave my studio and we'd go and we'd meet up. Um, And so I just, you know, it's funny. Sometimes I don't remember because, you know, some of this over 20 years ago, how I met some of these people. But it's always because I'm involved and I get out of my house and out of my studio. Like you and I met. You left to go out to the event. I left because I wanted to go talk at that event. And, and it's funny. And the reason I was talking at that event is because I go to conferences as well. And I talk to people. And uh, Jay Shu, who is one, one of the head guys over there at uh, a bunch of short guys, he had my book. He tracked me down because he had a couple of my, a couple of my books. And we became friends and just always stayed in touch. It's amazing what happens as you build a deeper friendship base of people in the industry. 
Yeah, that, that's definitely true. I've, I've seen that starting to happen in my own life because I had someone on a couple weeks ago who works with CinemaSins and we're starting to get to be pretty good friends and talking about different opportunities and you just have to be willing to go out and talk to people and I know a lot of times something that scares people away from conferences is the price because they can be expensive mm-hmm. but how I went to Industry Giants the very first year I went was I volunteered there you go it works it really does and that way you get in for free you get to meet some of the people behind the scenes mm-hmm. and so I wasn't able to volunteer last year because I didn't know if I was going to be able to go until the very last second. But the year before that, when I did, um, I got to be the one running the camera the entire time. So I just got to sit back there and watch, and it, I learned a lot. And you made connections. You met people, people who were attending and people who were running it. it it's amazing yeah. how that works. And I ended up making a good friend in the after party. Her name is Courtney. She goes by Chroma a lot of the time. And we're both writers. And um, we both kind of took turns getting each other into the world of audio dramas. And now she's working on producing one of her own. And she's already got two of the bonus episodes out. And it's coming along really well. And it's it was a dream she had years ago. And she just kind of never really gave up on it. And all that was because I was at the after party. Neither of us were quite sure who to talk to. So we just kind of clicked together and hung out the entire night. It's great. You know, and it's those types of things that can lead to more things. Exactly. And a lot of times if you're ever at a networking thing and you feel kind of awkward because you're not sure who to talk to, find the other awkward people standing around at the edges of the conversations and talk to them. Because you never know who that's actually going to be. I've got a really funny story about something like that. Years ago, I was at uh, I was giving a talk at, at Comic-Con out in San Diego. And as a major geek of, I, I, I'm, a, I'm a total geek on how things are done. So my favorite thing to do whenever I go to Comic-Con or any of these events are the behind the scenes. And there was an event going on on the making of Phineas and Ferb, which I'm a huge fan of that show. Such a great show. Yeah. <clears throat> so one of the things over the years that I've learned to do is always show up early for any event, any mm-hmm. talk or whatever. So I have a few minutes to talk to someone new. So I always show up early and I, I always scan the room and I look for someone who looks like they might be important. So in this case, I'm standing at the back of the room. I'm looking around. There's this one guy wearing this $3,000 suit sitting alone. But every once in a while, someone would go over lean over, whisper into his ear, he'd say something and they would leave. I thought, that's an important person. And there's an empty seat next to him. So I walked over and I sat in there. <laughs> and the best line ever that opens up any conversation whenever you're at an industry event is, what brings you here? I turned to him, I said, hey, I'm Mark, what brings you here? And he goes, hey, and, and introduced himself. I don't remember his name now. I should, as you'll find out in a sec. And uh, uh, he said, well, I'm part of this. Uh, I'm part of this event. I said, oh, how, uh, with Phineas and Ferb? No kidding. How so? He goes, oh, well, I'm the president of Disney Worldwide. Holy cow. (laughs) No kidding. Hey, here's my card. And he hands me his card. We chat. 
I now had direct phone, uh, direct connection to and phone number of the president of Disney Worldwide, which I used after that, just because I took it upon myself to go meet someone new and strike up a conversation rather than just sitting there twiddling my thumbs or checking my email. Yeah. How long did it take for the shock to wear off from that? Just a couple seconds, because I've done this <laughs> a lot over the years. Uh, but it was still like, wow, freaking jackpot. This is awesome. And the other thing is always make people feel good because, uh, you know, it's like, it's one of my favorite shows. I love this. You know, it's like, you know, grease the wheel, people. Greasing the wheel works. It really does. I, I have this habit I do with everyone because I currently work in retail, work at a bookstore. And my coworkers should probably get tired of hearing it, but I'm always complimenting people. I'm like, oh, I like your nail polish or I like your, I like your jacket. I just find something to point out and like if someone shows me something that they created even if they're talking about a story that may not be like the kind of story I would normally read I still I always try and find something that I like about it that's great there's no point in telling someone no this is dumb it's when you could be like yeah I like this part and this part and maybe you could do like this just be constructive build people up make them feel good absolutely yeah, no, it's fantastic. I also once got the piece of advice that the way to be the most interesting person in the room is to just sit there, is just to like ask people about questions about themselves and don't tell them anything about yourself. Everyone loves to talk about themselves, so yeah, it's a great way to uh, to learn. If you if you have a conversation with someone and you walk away and you don't know anything about them, you have no idea if that can benefit you or not. Yep, that's true. Plus, it leaves an impression on them that, like, if they know your name, like, well, that person was nice, but, and they asked a lot of really good questions about this kind of stuff, but I wonder what they do. Well, look, and if they're, they're a good conversationalist, it will go back and forth. But a lot of people have a hard time only talking about themselves. So, you know, it's a, like you said, it's good to know how to ask questions and then listen. Yeah, like whenever I'm working on stuff for this, I have like a, a list of like just questions I might ask, but I sometimes will only get to like one or two of those because you never know where the conversation's going to mm -hmm. go. But sometimes I find it's helpful. Well, this is for an interview situation, not for a random conversation, but it's always good to have like certain things to that you want to know you want to ask about. To even do that when I was calling a girl to ask her out on a date, I was so nervous whenever I would uh, talk to a girl. And I literally have notes on what to say because I knew I would freeze up. So at least now I'm married. I don't have to worry about that anymore. <laughs> well, I, yeah, I guess it worked out eventually. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, can't say I've ever done that. But then again, I'm not usually the person asking someone out on a date. Oh, I hated that. I hated that part of dating. I got away, uh, away with that pretty easy. My wife asked me out, so I didn't even have to <laughs> broach that subject. Huh. Looks like you're both very straightforward people, then. Well, it's worked for over 30 years so far. <laughs> that it has. So what are some other memorable projects that you've worked on or memorable interactions you've had? <sighs> all right. Well, not all of them are great, but but they, they give give you good stories. Um and there are times where my ego has definitely gotten the best of me. I remember back when I, and this is actually one of the stories from my book. Um, I think I talked about my book, my book when I was there. My latest book is called Start at the Top. 
And most of it is about story stories like the ones we've been talking about, how I would just leapfrog to the top of something uh, rather than paying dues. But it doesn't always work. And so I've got a whole section of the book. Uh, um, can can I can I curse on your podcast? It's fine. I'll just I I can if it gets too much, I can cut some out. You're fine. <laughs> All right. Well, there's a section of the book called Fuck Ups um, because I've had a few. Straightforward. And um, we all have. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So, so when I was when I had first moved out there, and I didn't know the process of becoming an animator literally is kind of paying your dues and working your way up. And and there's a number of reasons for it. But I thought I could just go out and start as an animator. I didn't know, you know, starting and clean up and doing in-betweens and becoming an animator and why. So because, like I said, I was self-taught. So I didn't know any better. Somehow, I ended up in a meeting with Bill Han and Joe Barbera. Hanna-Barbera. The Hanna-Barbera. Holy cow. And... Yeah, I, 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 and I have no idea to this day how I got that one. I wish I remembered how I got that meeting, but I did. You know, and here I was new in town. So I go in and, and I was nervous, but I was also really confident in my abilities. So I show them my stuff and, and I had a couple of animations that I, I had done on my own. And they said, well, you're doing all right, but you're not ready to be an animator yet. And they said, they said, you really need to start as an in-betweener and, and work your way up. I didn't like hearing that. I wasn't used to it. I had never been in that position. So I did the stupidest thing, one of the, literally one of the stupidest things I've ever done in my life. I got mad. And I grabbed my stuff. And I didn't huff out. But as I was walking out, I turned and looked at him. Oh, this is embarrassing to even say. But I turned and looked at him. I said, you'll be hearing of me before you hear from me. And I left. And I got out of my car and I thought, did I really just say that to Hannah and Barbara? And of course that did not happen. (laughs) They were long dead before anyone knew who the hell I was. At least it was a good line. (laughs) But I I mean, like not, not the best thing to say. But I might have to steal that. (laughs) So. Because that's actually really good. (laughs) So not not everything works out with the way I've tried it, but at least I've learned from mistakes like that. And and I've learned not to repeat that kind of nonsense. (laughs) But at least I walked away with a good story. Yeah, that is a good story. Have have you ever had a time where you like kind of like a dark night of the soul thing where like you wondered if it's worth it or like just hit a rough patch and weren't sure where to go next? Never really had had that because I've always been busy. And, you know, if, if my phone stops ringing, I start making calls and going out and meeting people. One of the things that where I took a chance that's really worked out, though, was Back when I was still living in in Los Angeles. An Incomplete Guide to World Domination is directed and produced by Brianna Toybert as part of Pseudonym Social, a creative podcast network. Music is by Patrick Chester of Chester Studios. You can find more of his work at chesterstudios.net. If you would like to help support our show, you can find us at patreon.com slash pseudonymsocial. 
You can also leave a review on iTunes to make our show easier to find for those who need it. For more information on the other shows produced by Pseudonym Social, please check out our website at pseudonymsocial.wordpress.com.